Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Harvard Westlake's Cutler Center, named for the late Brendan Cutler, class of 2010, is an innovative hub that cultivates and sustains interdisciplinary studies and independent research at Harvard Westlake's upper school. Each year, a scholar in residence is chosen for their ability to represent interdisciplinary thinking and approaches to understanding the world. This year's Cutler Scholar in Residence, as well as today's guest, is constitutional law professor Kimberly West Falcon. In this episode, Kimberly speaks about the nature of both her current and past research. Currently, Kimberly is studying constitutional interpretation, including what she describes as more contemporary notions of originalism, and specifically how they have been applied to the Second Amendment. Kimberly's previous research and practice has related to education, including ability grouping and tracking and standardized testing. While Kimberly admits that both were quite beneficial to her own educational outcomes, including earning a full scholarship to Duke before attending Yale Law School, they are also practices that can, in her mind, reinforce socioeconomic inequity and breed inaccurate beliefs about intelligence. Kimberly also speaks about growing up in North Carolina as the child of educators and public servants, and finding inspiration both in the mentorship of a Duke professor, as well as social justice pioneers like Constance Baker Motley, Charles Hamilton Houston, and Thurgood Marshall. Kimberly takes all of their lessons into the classroom today as the James P. Bradley Professor in Constitutional Law at Loyola Marymount. This is The Supporting Cast. West Falcon. Welcome to the supporting cast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. It's an honor for me to talk to you as uh, this year's Cutler Scholar in Residence. And, and I always like to start with the present first, because we are sort of hopefully we think at the tail end of this pandemic that started almost two years ago. First, I just want to know how are you and Kent and your family doing? We're doing very well. We have been very fortunate to have weathered the pandemic uh, with a lot of blessings and privileges that have helped make it possible for us to stay safe. We did have some wonderful bonus time, but I'm kind of regretful that my Harvard Westlake alum now had to come back from Cornell is where he's in college for the tail end of his his sophomore year. Mm. <laughs> and so then junior year, he was able to be on campus, but everything was virtual because Cornell was exceedingly safe. And he was tested multiple, multiple times a week. And uh, we had a lot of confidence that he was going to be safe. And then, you know, hybrid. And so every year, it's been a different iteration. But we were very grateful because Dr. Fauci is a Cornellian. So mm. uh, they they could not have uh, handled it more beautifully in our mind. And we had our daughter who went to Marlboro, spent her senior year, sadly, 
all online, uh, had mm. about eight days in person. So we've gone through some wonderful milestones, but in a different way. But we're really excited now because now we have an empty nest and they're both at Cornell together and um, enjoying each other and being very safe and are protected. And it looks like we are on the tail end because Cornell has now ended their surveillance testing. And as one mm. of the most COVID safe schools out there, that is really an indication that we're heading into a different era of this and that it feels like it's going to now be endemic. And I'm really personally quite happy that I'm able to be in person with my law students. And I did that in the fall. And I have still a class that I'm doing remotely because we're still masking. And I felt that for that particular class, they were going to be better off seeing each other's faces and we could be a little more intimate. So I'm looking forward to moving to a, a more holistic, in-person. I see everyone. I get to engage with them. So we're doing well. And, and thanks so much for asking because it has been a trying time, but very different for different people, depending upon you know where they are geographically and also as far as the children, where they are in their development and their schooling. Exactly. And so nice that both your kids are at the same college. That's so nice that they can be together. An absolute treat. And they are the closest. They are three years apart, but my son is by far the best big brother there has ever oh. been in the world. And so once my daughter um, found herself fortunate enough to be admitted, his being there was a, a real plus. It's just warms our hearts, especially during the pandemic, to know they're both somewhere very well uh, squirreled away. I said, no one goes to upstate New York unless they have a very good reason. So you don't have to worry about <laughs> any extra COVID, right? Whatever you guys have there is what you're going to keep. He's just a, a wonderful big brother, and they are incredibly fortunate to have each other. So in addition to being this year's Cutler Scholar-in-Residence, as you mentioned, you are also a constitutional law professor with a particular focus at the moment on the United States Supreme Court. And so uh, before delving into your own story, which I want to get to, I'd love to explore a couple of areas that are relevant to the court. First, I understand it, an area of research as well as a course you are teaching currently relates to the Second Amendment. And can you talk a bit about that course and some of the issues you're exploring within it? Sure thing, Eli. I almost every semester teach the required constitutional law course, which is the meat and potatoes course that uh, you can't graduate from law school without covering. And so that's the course where we cover, make sure everyone leaves the law school with a good understanding of the structure of the Constitution, civil rights and civil liberties. And then I also have the great pleasure of uh, teaching a smaller number of students advanced topics in constitutional law. And mm -hmm. for quite some time, I've always made sure my constitutional law classes, the, the large required ones, start with an engagement with theories of constitutional interpretation and what ideas there are behind about how you ascribe meaning to a provision of the Constitution that could potentially have more than one meaning. There are plenty of aspects of the Constitution that, while they're not discussed and studied a lot because they are straightforward. Like, how old do you need to be to be the president of the United States? We, right. we hopefully, um, even in these divisive times, don't find too many people who disagree about that that right. number. By contrast, uh, what my courses always uh, delve into are the areas where there are ideas and theoretical disputes about um, how one would go about interpreting a provision and even theoretical disputes about what's the best way to interpret the Constitution. And so my originalism class 
class is a class that uses the Second Amendment as mm. a, a starting point. Um, my constitutional law class does as well. But the, the real focus of the class is introducing my students to, as I think about it, I, I, I really am coming to feel the best way to describe originalism is it's a kind of a, a disruptor of sorts. It sounds like it it's been around a long time, but it's actually a an upstart theory uh, hmm. that's uh, 50 years old at best, and uh, kind of like Uber would have been to taxi cabs, and that there is a hmm. method of constitutional interpretation that has predominated from the beginning of the, the framing of the Constitution. And then there is this more novel one that what I really enjoy and use the Second Amendment as one of many vehicles to teach my students is that there are lots of aspects to originalism that are quite surprising, counterintuitive, and they come to the class thinking originalism is one thing, and then I have them read a lot of originalist scholars and some cases like DC versus Heller for them to find out that what they thought originalism is isn't what it is, and hmm. it's it's a really good opportunity, I think, for them to take seriously what it means to have a theory of constitutional interpretation at a time when constitutional law, the Supreme Court, uh, democracy are really at the fore of their lives. And that hasn't always been true. In the long time that I've been teaching constitutional law, there have been times where that was kind of a back burner question. But now it is uh, certainly a class where they're all very eager to delve into whether it's the required class or my more niche uh, originalism class. Yeah. So if uh, let me ask the question as sort of the novice here about originalism. If I'm thinking about the Second Amendment, originalism in my mind would be interpreting the Constitution as though we are the founding fathers there in the 1700s thinking about people having muskets and so forth around the time of the revolution and trying to apply the law currently as though it were intended to be applied in the 1700s. Is that correct or am I kind of simplifying it too much? Well, you're, you're not simplifying it, but you're engaging and understanding originalism to be exactly what my students expect it to be. And I think ah. what most lay people would think it is. Right, right. And... So what is it? What, what am I getting wrong? <laughs> well, 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 and why DC versus Heller is a lovely opinion okay. to, to start that lesson is because it also, I think, disrupts people's expectations. Uh, mm. The majority in DC versus Heller is written by Justice Scalia. So one of our most famous and now deceased uh, justices. Whose focus has been originalism. Correct? Originalism. And yeah. a specific iteration of originalism that is called original meaning originalism. And there have been many versions and iterations of originalism, which is the first I thing see. that surprises my students, that there is the kind of originalism, and not all my students are old enough or have enough experience to know the name Robert Bork, but people who are my age and people who know of him being one of the last Supreme Court justices to be very forthright about his writings and his theories and his views, he's associated with something called specific intent originalism. And it is the kind that I think most people, and when I speak with journalists, they assume that Justice Scalia would use the same kind of originalism or that Justice Alito or Justice Thomas use the Judge Bork kind of originalism, mm -hmm. which is what most people have in mind, which is the meaning of a provision would be fixed in time based on if we could have a seance and bring James Madison back, or I love that now Lynn manuel has helped me and I'm like, if we could be in the room where it happened, yes, <laughs> um, that, right. that that would be the meaning. And that if you went in the room where it happened and James Madison said, as 
really the research shows that the Second Amendment is a federalism concern. It is about uh, mm. ha having arms for the collective good to fight in a state militia. That Bork, or if you were a true and tried and consistent and principled original meaning originalist, that would tell you the meaning. But if you actually, and, and my students have the luxury, I tell them it's always a luxury to be able to study constitutional law in depth when other people are having to go to work and do other things. When you actually read the opinion in DC versus Heller, it's the dissenting opinion by the justices who are appointed by Democrats and the newspaper would call them the liberal justices mm -hmm. who are focused and relying on what James Madison thought and intended the Second Amendment to mean. And that's disruptive in the sense of that's not what they're expecting. They're expecting Justice Scalia to be focused and interested in what James Madison had in mind. And I'm often telling my students to think about if they really understand the material, you'd be able to explain it to your non-lawyer cousin at the 4th of July barbecue or the person who comes up to you at the bar. Or the <laughs> podcast host at Harvard Westlake. Or the podcast host. And that that's what people are going to think and expect of Justice yeah. Scalia's opinion in DC versus Heller. What original meaning originalism and the current approach to interpreting the Constitution actually involves is something much more and much less intuitive, I think, for the average person, which is what Justice Scalia and original meaning originalists, they have multiple iterations, public understanding, they call what they do multiple things, but they are looking at dictionaries from the 1700s, mm. legal scholarship from the 1700s, opinion articles from newspapers from the 1700s. And what is most surprising and shocking to my students, and we can get shocked pretty easily in constitutional law because we get pretty geeked out about it, um, is that Original meaning originalists actually reject as a source of meaning what James Madison intended. Huh. And, and so I, I, I tell them that specific intent originalism would be you could get in your time machine and go back to the room where it happened. And whatever they said, that would be the meaning of the Second Amendment. It'd be fixed in time. The only way to change it would be to amend the Constitution. But that, to their surprise, I think to the surprise of people who aren't deep into this, if Justice Scalia or Justice Alito or Justice Thomas had the chance to use a time machine, they wouldn't go to the room where it happened. They'd go to the library. They'd go to the library of the 1700s. They'd go to the law school of the 1700s. They would find thinkers of the 1700s and instead ask them what the Second Amendment means. And how that actually plays out in practice is what is surprising is that this approach to interpretation that is really marketed and sold is very constraining. It mm -hmm. actually is quite judge empowering. It gives the justices the opportunity to engage with historical documents. And in 2022, because they don't actually have a time machine, actually decide, interpret, read these dictionaries and reach their own conclusion about what the 1700s meaning was. And so that's why it's very difficult for us to predict what the current Supreme Court's going to be doing next. Because if it were truly the old-fashioned specific intent originalism, which has its own problems, because if you go to the room where it happened, imagine yourself in that room, there are going to be a lot of people wearing white powdered wigs, and they're not going to agree. Right? <laughs> they're not going to agree. They're not necessarily always going to give you the same answer, which is why original list switched from the Bork version to the Scalia version, which it's much more difficult to tell someone they got that wrong, because how many of us have 1700 dictionaries sitting around, and we don't have a theory 
theory as to how we read them. But the, we do now have a court that's probably 6-3 originalist leaning. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a longer conversation, which which of the justices are tried and true original meaning originalists and who might deviate from that in the future. But it does help my students get a better sense of why it is difficult to predict what the future is going to hold with this current court. Because once you understand that original meaning originalism is quite judge empowering and that the jurists on the court are very activist, it doesn't align with, again, some of us who've been court watchers for decades. It used to be you associated Republican appointed judges with saying we want the status quo and we're not trying to change things. And we critique the Warren court for being activist. And now we're in a very different stage where justices like Clarence Thomas very readily embrace judicial activism. And they're quite eager to overrule prior opinions and to change constitutional law in a very significant way. You know, one of the reasons that we're exploring the Second Amendment today is, A, it's, it's the subject of your research and your coursework, but also what's unique about the issue of gun control is how overwhelmingly popular some gun control measures are across the board. So, you know, something like universal background checks, I believe, has 90 percent public approval. And these are from Fox News polls. These aren't Rachel Maddow. Things like assault weapons bans, I think, have more than two thirds public support. Yet there can't seem to be legislation that passes. Is this notion of originalism one of the things preventing sort of progress, um, very popular progress, from taking place on this issue? In a way, it definitely is. Before 2008, and this is the part that is not something that I would think the person who's not spending a lot of time looking at even the Heller case would necessarily know, but a lot of us who are lawyers and went to law school before 2008, that wasn't what the Second Amendment meant before. The the meaning Mm. of the Second Amendment has changed tremendously. That 200 years before 2008, the Second Amendment was not a constitutional amendment that had any modern applicability. And that before D.C. versus Heller, there were plenty of federal gun regulations. There were federal gun regulations to address the actions of the 1930s mobsters. There were federal gun regulations that made my childhood quite different than the childhood of my my children and even my current time as a professor. There weren't active shooter drills. There were yeah, right. uh, there was more local control that the law permitted, which is it could vary by locale to locale. And so that is what that case changed. And so it was a 5-4 opinion. And certainly the theory you use to interpret the Constitution has a great deal of impact on what a provision means. But big picture, the rules of the road changed with DC versus Heller, and it made it more difficult for gun regulations to exist. And Mm -hmm. we are anticipating because we have a number of justices who have been very explicit in their embrace of raising the bar. I'm always with my students uh, saying that uh, we have standards of review and that ultimately translates into how difficult is it for the government to regulate in a certain realm. And Mm -hmm. it was easy for the government to regulate in the realm of gun regulations on the premise that guns are deadly. And uh, we we have all come together in a a civilized society and given over some of our liberties in exchange for protection of the of laws and rules. Seatbelts, stop signs, stoplights, right? That's the example people use. Exactly. And that 
there is just something universally important and understood that if we're all armed to the teeth in different realms, right? That being in Alaska and having a certain <laughs> degree of protections and different kinds of firearms is a local control question. And that yeah. if you are a voter in Alaska, you're going to send your representatives to create gun regulations that are appropriate for your location. What the case in DC versus Heller ultimately did, and what we expect uh, we're going to find the court doing in a couple of months, is creating a legal standard of review that will make it more difficult for there to be variations from community to community. And so mm. that is a challenge to comprehend for some, because we're also expecting the court to take the 14th Amendment that has a, a due process clause, and it's about the word liberty, and the regulation of terminating a pregnancy previability by contrast, is a, a type of government regulation where you have plenty of Americans who want to have a universal rule and a universal rule that makes it easier for the government to regulate. So mm -hmm. it is an imbalance in that way because you have some individuals who, as a policy preference, want very little and minimal government regulation of whether you open carry a gun, what kinds of guns you have, whether you need a license, and then the question of, but how much should the government be able to regulate the termination of a pregnancy pre-viability. And so a lot of what I think helps my students conceptually is understanding that constitutional law writ large is really a course. And the question is, what exercises of government regulation are appropriate? And what is the standard of review? How much burden are we going to place on the government to defend how we're being regulated? Uh, and that used to be simpler. Uh, I feel like, you know, 15 years ago, in recent years and months, I found myself even this semester, always trying to change the way I engage on these things, because we have so many, I think, of our, our fellow Americans actually using a lot of terminology that I use in my classes. And they're articulating autonomy and liberty and freedom to do all sorts of things. And I am so thrilled that my fellow citizens want to talk about the Constitution, they want to engage with it, but that I'm also realizing that that requires, and particularly for people who've paid a really significant amount of tuition to be my law students, it's like, I'd like for you to think about it in a much more sophisticated way, in a more sophisticated way of understanding uh, yeah. what government is, is that unlimited liberty is anarchy quite dangerous? It's not a world. I, I, I try to appeal to them, even though it's not my movie of choice. It'd be like The Purge, right? <laughs> that people who might be at the barbecue going, I want absolute freedom to do whatever I want. It's like absolute freedom for all is, is a pretty terrifying scenario, which is why we've all entered into agreeing to, to government regulation, but subject to for the most part, majority rule, and we elect our representatives to then see how our policy preferences work out. And then with some exceptions, have the court step in and tell us when the majority's wishes um, are inappropriate. And so that plays out differently in different subject matter. And it plays out differently when you're the citizen, right? And if it's your policy preferences, you want it always to be what is actually the law. But that's the challenge of our representative democracy. And that's what the Constitution is hopefully doing for us is it's giving us some rules of the road so we can continue to self-govern, which is the ultimate point, right? And at this moment, right. when we're talking, Russia invading Ukraine is, is what is front of mind for me. And just kind of the big pictures about our representative democracy has really been on my mind 
that's been the last seven years for me, the last seven to eight years of just being very laser focused on making sure uh, my students have those fundamentals. Because if lawyers don't understand how our system works, then we're not going to make sure we, we all talk to, like I say, our non-lawyer friends and, and everyone else to explain how important it is that we are all engaged in our democracy. So now we could keep talking about this for another several hours, but I want to get to you. So Kimberly, where did you grow up? I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what did your parents do? What was your upbringing like there? My mother was a first grade teacher and my father was a trailblazer in the extension service. Land grant universities often have relationships with extension services where it is taking the knowledge that the institution creates and extending it to the citizens of the state. And so if there's knowledge in horticulture or knowledge about medicine, that what the extension service does is uh, make sure that the people who are funding public universities actually um, benefit from the knowledge. So I, I come from a household of educators, public servants. My father's been um, an elected official in North Carolina for now, um, I think, all of my oldest life. So that's about 22 years. Wow. So, and what's his position there? Um, he is basically the equivalent now of a Los Angeles supervisor. They call them uh, commissioners uh. in Wake County, which is the, the largest county, and it's the capital county. And then he was a councilman in on the Raleigh City Council for, for many years as well. So both parents uh, went to HBCUs in North Carolina, were um, active in the civil rights movement. And so I, I come from a family of educators and people of African descent who um, have been very engaged in trying to make this uh, democracy a, a better one and one that lives up to uh, the glorious ideals of things like the Constitution. <laughs> and I was yeah. also a civil rights lawyer for um, right. about a decade before I joined the academy full force and full time. Can you talk about the influence of your parents? Because clearly an educator and a politician, but really people who have been involved in the civil rights movement before you were born the lessons that they imparted upon you that influenced your journey and, and the things you take from them into your current career now? One of the things that I pursued as a litigator and then had some scholarly engagement with was and remains to some extent uh, the misuse or the proper use of standardized tests. And so mm. when I think about um, how my mother got me started on the road to being an accomplished lawyer and getting into auspicious institutions like uh, Duke University and Yale Law School, yeah. um, I attribute it to her being that first grade teacher who taught me to read very early and um, to me being an excellent test taker and someone who uh, was able to excel in um, what was a quality public school system. I also guess I need to think to thank folks like Terry Sanford, who was our governor and um, coming from um, a part of the country where public schools were absolutely excellent. And so I was able to start school in the top reading groups and things like that because of my mother. And I think we can all remember those groups. Remember, they were all they were the bluebirds or the umbrellas, but you still kind of knew yeah. who was in the top group and that kind of of, we, we now know it to be ability grouping and tracking, or that's the terminology I learned uh, when I was a civil rights lawyer. But it was just having all of the best and um, immense benefits from being tracked into our North Carolina's highly gifted program and having my parents support me that gave me access to a stellar public school education. And then I think there was a combination of, I just did love to study. I mean, there's, you know, I'm the kind of 
the person who leaves uh, being a civil rights lawyer to be an academic. So being surrounded by books, spending the day reading and engaging with an idea and, and writing on a 99-page uh, law review article is really exciting stuff to me. And so um, when I was a student studying and uh, learning as much as I can and I could in a broad range of topics uh, was always appealing. And so they were very uh, instrumental in getting me started. And I, I know one of the things that this program is engaging with is, you know, who in your um, trajectory uh, was influential. And I yeah. really had a wonderful experience at uh, Duke University. I chose it over some more elite and definitely Ivy League institutions. Um, I was very blessed Pretty to have. <laughs> I, it, it was and, and is increasingly so. But to be frank, I had the chance to go to Harvard and Princeton and I chose Duke instead. One, because they gave me an absolutely amazing scholarship. So I was bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it was a, it was a full ride, a full merit scholarship wow. to Duke. But it was uh, for me and I and I, I do try to share this with other folks that the idea of the best fit university, um, I think is is an absolute truth. And that I found at Duke an institution that was so focused on undergrads that Professor David Pallets, who was on the political science faculty, and I was a interdisciplinary political science economics major, he sought me out. He sought me out as a mentee. He was someone who when I would be there for office hours to ask a couple of questions, say, what are you doing this summer? And you must work on the Hill and you must intern for a senator and a a congressman this summer. And I'm going to make a call to make sure that happens. And you should, there's a faculty scholar award at Duke, and um, it is the most um, significant award that the faculty can give to an undergrad. And I don't remember what prompted me to apply for it, but I'm mm-hmm. aside from I was always wanting to write things and, um, yeah. and, and pursue things like that. But I'm pretty certain that that would have been the idea that uh, Professor Pallets would have said, you, you should be our faculty scholar. And so he's someone that comes to mind uh, as uh, someone that was very instrumental in encouraging me to pursue the creme de la creme of the kind of opportunities an institution like Duke made possible. And I was able to leave that institution with a lot of laurels uh, and, and, and ones that prepared me for a, a lot of laurels and a lot of uh, knowledge and experiences that I think are directly related to me being at the perfect fit for me. Again, an institution that was um, small enough and undergrad focused enough that I didn't have a lot of TAs. I was right Mm -hmm. there in the room with a professor. And I don't know, even though I had such an amazing K through 12 education, I didn't have the Harvard Westlake Marlboro type of education where there were regular office hours. And I never knew if I would have been the kind of student at Harvard who would have sought out the professor that you, you know, you, that really shouldn't be sought out because they're working with graduate students or you have 500 people in a classroom. And so I, I really do think that the the great kind of advising that, that people get um, from the Harvard Westlake counselors, in fact, and I know some people go, oh, that's just kind of, you know, we all know everyone should go to the best place they could get into in, in some U.S. News and World Report um, manner. Um, I really think that uh, my own personal experience is a testament to uh, really thinking very carefully about your personality, your own experiences, and that you're, you'll probably find a, a wonderful mentor and a peer group along the 
way if you choose your your undergraduate institution uh, for for that best fit. Um, I, I do have different conversations with folks that are beyond the scope of this about graduate schools. I think that's yeah. a different thing. But um, my experience at Duke, and then who could not love the fact that of the four years I was there, uh, we went to the final four, three of the four, and I'm from the I'm from like to age myself. It was Christian Leitner had an amazing shot uh, yeah. <laughs> during my time there, and um, one of the most famous shots in uh, maybe the most famous shot in college basketball history. I think so. I think so. And so being from North Carolina originally, uh, there there's nothing more important than ACC basketball. I, yeah. I, I, now that they have um, actual professional teams, I don't know if it is the same then as it was now. But the other piece of that, though, was um, I my father uh, taught at NC State. So I grew up as a, a Wolfpack fan. And uh, I don't know. So also Jim Valvano and the Cardiac sure. Pack. And uh, so um, so I, I was a little torn. And my husband is a, grew up as a UNC fan. So then going oh, to no. Duke just complicated the whole thing. Thing, right? <laughs> but, but, but basketball, wonderful, right? And Coach Shasevsky yeah. um, and um, all of those things. Right. It, was, it was a great it was a great time. Have you converted Kent over to the Duke side or is he still a UNC fan? I don't know that either of us honestly converted. I mean, really, don't let mm. um, my, my, my fellow Duke Blue Devils hear that, right? Because if um, if NC State ever came back, you know, I, w- I would be torn myself. Uh, so yeah. um, I, I think um, Duke, when you're from North Carolina, to be absolutely frank people in North Carolina don't see as Duke as really a North Carolina school there were many people who were like you're going to that Yankee school like um how, how dare you because another place I chose not to go to was UNC and I have a I had a, a teacher who was a dear friend who um or a dear mentor I guess of sorts I don't feel like she ever looked at me the same way once I decided to go to Duke instead of UNC she actually um challenged me quite a bit on that so um so so I think I, our hearts are still in those North Carolina schools in the more uh, traditional sense. But as far as mentors, the college ones I have continue to stand out in addition to, and you know, I could go on and on about the influence that my parents had, I didn't know yeah. it at the time, on me becoming a civil rights lawyer. But uh, that that's kind of a, a longer and different story, I think. But you did decide to become a lawyer. Was it during that time? Did you go straight to Yale Law School or did you take some time in between? I went straight. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, It was actually my interest in education. It was actually going to be policy. It turns out that I became an education civil rights litigator. But I really found myself disappointed and disheartened by the difference in outcomes that close friends of mine were experiencing at the time that I was experiencing all of these amazing opportunities. And I have a very um, vivid recollection. And we went to a very, we, um, Kent went to high school with me. We're high school sweethearts. So we've been on this this journey. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it is very cool. But our high school was very large and Kent's good on remembering all the numbers, like how many years we've been together and um, how many anniversaries and all things of that sort. Either it was three to 5,000. We went to a very large high school, but an excellent high school. But I remember pretty vividly the guidance counselor who certainly was enjoying all of the immense opportunities I had. I mean, it it was an amazing school, but it wasn't 
that precedented for someone to have the kinds of options of colleges that I had, in contrast to Harvard-Westlake, where that's that's kind of commonplace. Uh, and she asked me about my friends and where, where they were going and what they were going to be doing after college. And what was disheartening first was that she didn't know them. She didn't know their names. And, you know, that's a difference in guidance counseling resources uh, when you're in a public school versus uh, a private school. But also, I, I, I fundamentally thought that it had a lot to do with the tracking that had gone in our school. And yeah. uh, my friend group, like me, uh, was made up of African-American girls. And they were headed places that I'm, you know, I, I've not kept in touch with them. And I hope they've had um, wonderful and are living wonderful and happy lives. But they were headed to places like cosmetology school. They were not headed to higher education. And I have always felt that, except on, you know, some rather significant extremes, that we all can and could benefit from, if it's going to be a vocational education, a path to the right kind of job. If it's going to be higher education, a path to the right kind of college or university. And so I was really inspired to go to law school to enhance educational opportunities, to try to dismantle structures that were going to make it more difficult for kids who have less supported home, who have less economic uh, blessings to have success. And so that's why I went to law school. It was to be a modern version of Constance Baker Motley or Thurgood Marshall and to try to either through a policy lens and then eventually it became through a litigation lens to use the law as a tool for social change. There's actually Actually, Charles Hamilton Houston was a mentor and the teacher to Thurgood Marshall. So he's actually probably one of my um, greatest heroes. And so that's what took me to law school. And Yale is a great place for a do-gooder who wants to go change the world to go to law school. Uh, that is where people let you sit around and engage with that kind of idea uh, quite a bit. Can I get back to this sort of educational tracking question? Because you had said that it benefited you so much that you you said your mother had raised you to be a great test taker and that you excelled in these tests, you ended up in this higher level track and that you benefited so much from that. And yet you saw friends who had gone in a different track, who had tested differently, gone to a different track, didn't have the same type of educational opportunities, I suppose, that you did. What's your feeling on tracking? What's your feeling on testing? Uh, I know that's a big question. You've written and litigated heavily on all of these issues, but how do you feel about that in hindsight? Well, I'll, I'll say that it has been quite some time since I have engaged the education research on ability grouping and tracking. Yet, one of my early civil rights class action lawsuits and one of the projects that I pursued when I was a young lawyer was based on what was a, a pretty universal, at that point, again, I, I'm not purporting that I know the pedagogical research on this now, conclusion that heterogeneous ability grouping, so integrating people who are of different abilities, has tremendous benefits for people who are both advanced and for people who don't know the material as well. Based on that research, I was certainly at that time quite focused on trying to challenge unjustifiable distinctions among kids because in most context was translating, and at my school it translated, into a pretty racialized mm. hierarchy mm. that you could pretty much predict what the racial composition of certainly my 
highly gifted classes were. There were only 60 of us in the entire uh, Wake County school system. And as the years went on, we went from maybe six African-American kids to maybe one or two. And, and maybe it was just me by the time we made it to 12th grade. And so there was certainly a socioeconomic component of it. And that is the part that I found troubling and continue to find troubling. If where you're born in life and who you're born to is so determinative of where you end up, that doesn't seem like what the goal of education should be, that we shouldn't have educational practices that are going to reinforce inequities. And with respect to testing, I have never taken the position in my scholarship and and my research never led me to the conclusion that we should look at standardized tests as inherently evil nor inherently racist or problematic. Mm -hmm. But instead, I've I've actually um, encouraged and tried to write pieces that encourage thinking of standardized tests as a technology. And like almost any technology, whether it's a firearm or your car, that it can be put to the proper use, good use. My research uh, often engaged with expertise in theories of intelligence, expertise in the creation and study of standardized tests, psychometrics. And so when you look at that research, one of the things that comes to the fore and I thought would be helpful for lawyers to engage with and basically everybody else in society who are test takers and the users and uh, the people whose lives are impacted by them is that tests have changed over time. And um, I often have written about the problems of relying on a standardized test that is more like the Model T Ford mm-hmm. car, mm-hmm. right, That than a modern <laughs> Ford vehicle, yeah. that you wouldn't go driving around in a Model T because it's just not as good. It doesn't take advantage of the evolution of the technology of testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's just kind of the basics of test use that many of us think that tests are more precise measures of whatever the outcome is Merit. that they're attempting to measure. Well, <laughs> there, there's also that question of which whether tests are designed to measure merit. Right. And the, the, the rather most famous test that most of us think about the SAT is a test that when you understand and you look in most a lot of people don't have the opportunity to to look at really the user's manual for tests. I mean, a lot of people don't know that standardized tests have user manuals, but that's where you look and that's where the maker of the test tells you point blank this test is designed to predict why. And the why is for the SAT, it's your relative comparison to the other people in your freshman class, your GPA at the end of your freshman year in college, which is a very valuable piece of information if you're an institution and you're trying to make sure you admit kids who are going to be able to succeed after a year in college. It's not a predictor of who's going to be your faculty scholar, who's going to be go, go off and be president of the United States, or your most renowned and accomplished business leader. But notably, it's also not a prediction of your GPA at the end of four years, which is really what most people would care about, or how good you're going to be at X, Y, or Z down the road. And so that's one way we misunderstand tests and what they're capable of, is that a lot of times there's more of a mythology that this technology 
technology is capable of doing far more than it can do. What's also quite telling is the degree of at which it can do so, yeah. that really wonky things like correlation coefficients and predictive ability. It's that the degree and the percentage of correlation that the SAT can predict is very low. And when I've taught classes on that, I've had my students be quite disappointed that it's like in the 20 or 30%. And they're like, come on, professor, I spent my whole life, you know, it feels like prepping for the LSAT or the right. SAT, and it only predicts this amount. And I'm like, well, think about it. What you do in your first year of college or while you're a, a, a first year law student is certainly going to be much more predictive. If you spend most of the year partying or you have some horrible outcome in your life or you decide to stop studying, that's going to explain most of the variation in grades between those first year students. And so those are the sort of things that lead to a, a more nuanced take, I think, on how one would use standardized tests. But I do think my position on the best way to select the most meritorious class has been, and I uh, was a, a lawyer in a lawsuit against UC Berkeley for a number of years that was seeking more fairness in uh, their admissions process, is that the more criteria, the more variables an admissions team uses, the more fair the process is ultimately going to be, and that more information is better than less information. So if you use a test score correctly, and you use it in combination with all the other things you know about a student, including what their high school is like, and you know what kind of classes they took, it can be a very valuable tool. But the danger, and I think why we're seeing so many schools move away from that, is that it's very hard to use test scores correctly. And this is beyond and outside my scope of expertise, but I've often thought I need a psychologist to help engage with, and some psychologists have written and engage with this idea. We love numbers. Like we love being able to sum people up by a couple of numbers. And so if we can sum you up by your GPA and your test score and how we as humans are influenced by small differences in test scores. And there is a, maybe it's a compulsion, right? This is where we're outside of my area of expertise. But there's certainly a strong tendency to think that if I have uh, 50 more points than someone else on my SATs or my, uh, you know, some other standardized tests, that I'm just that much more worthy, as you say, meritorious yeah. and deserving of admission. And that's what doesn't line up with the science of a standardized test, because uh, the test may and uh, its user's guide. It's not easy if you don't do it for a living, but you can look it up and find out whether that 50 point difference has any scientific significance. And, you know, I use that one as an example. It probably doesn't. It probably doesn't mean any difference whatsoever, even in how you performed on that very test. But certainly in a high stakes decision like what college or university you're going to be admitted to, scientifically insignificant differences in test scores are problematic for institutions to rely on. I think something we can be heartened by, though, I don't think there's any group of people in the nation more astute about what test scores mean and don't mean than college admissions officers. Right. <laughs> I find that they read the same things that I read. And right. it's really uh, the rest of us, including the physics professor at the fancy college who doesn't really know <laughs> what someone's SAT score does or doesn't mean, that are more inclined to to really look to that number and, and more dangerously, I think, and problematically, the mean SAT score for the whole institution and to read a lot into that number 
number or often look at the means for different groups and reach vastly problematic and um, inaccurate conclusions about racial groups based on a mean SAT score. And so the more you dive into something like that, which is why I now (laughs) love being an academic because I get to do that sort of thing, you find greater and greater complexity. And what I see is the goal of being an intellectual uh, one of our goals and, and jobs is to teach research, but then also service and trying to translate these very complicated, intricate, complex ideas, as again, like I asked my students to try and translate that to lawyers and judges and those who are uh, having to make important decisions about our, our world is one of the things I try to do. So I have been interested in standardized testing because of how it has benefited me personally, but also hopefully because of the, the type of empathy and the, the type of household I grew up in. I've never seen it as a, a reason to wrap myself in some form of elitism and go, well, I'm so much better than, than everyone who, who doesn't do that. And in fact, I, I think it, it my research and, and just kind of who I am as a person makes me extremely empathetic to quite brilliant people who don't find that standardized tests are the way they express their brilliance in the best manner. Uh, so it, it's been an interesting journey to have that as the personal background, but also to litigate in that realm and then uh, to write about that as well. That's right about college admission officers. You know, there, there was so much emphasis on the SAT, U.S. News and World Report, you know, and trying to kind of get those rankings by pumping up a mean or median uh, SAT score and so forth. But you talk to admission officers and they feel so unburdened by the test optional situation that there is now because they can suddenly be more free to look in a more nuanced way at an application rather than having to sort of rely on a number so heavily. Yes, I I think, again, I think a lot of admissions officers, if they have the resources, and that's why we see variations, right, that, that, that schools with more resources really do love having the opportunity to engage in holistic review. That means you can take more time. And then the schools that can't do that often can't do so because of resources. But Harvard Westlake is a community where many people are choosing among the most selective universities out there. But when I'm trying to speak about these things more broadly, I do always ask folks to take a moment to pause and recognize that highly selective universities make up such a very small percentage of the the colleges and universities in this country, and that there are many admissions officers for whom that's not the inquiry at all. It is, did you take the required K through 12 curriculum or high school curriculum that makes us able to admit you? Uh, Do you have a kind of baseline SAT score that makes this a reasonable school and can we expect you to succeed? And so those would be the environments where it's never been about a hundred point difference in an SAT score making the difference in getting in. And so context matters. Uh, Context matters writ large in um, any of these kinds of discussions. As you know, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. So before we go, I wanted to ask those, and, and these relate to Los Angeles, where you didn't grow up, but where you live now. LA is known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So I know that your husband is involved in the, in the film industry. He's an actor and a director and a producer. What's your favorite movie? What's Kimberly West Falcon's favorite movie? I hope he doesn't listen to this because it's none of the, the 
know, he's taken whatever those fancy words are for it because he, he is a classically trained actor and has studied filmography, all those fancy things. But I love movies and I love going to the movies with my family. And I think even my daughter would be way better at a question like this. I'm glad I listened to someone else's to know that I might be <laughs> asked to answer this. I think it's going to be a Disney movie, an animated Disney movie. And because it's something that I do watch and um, yeah. like watching with my daughter, which is Princess and the Frog. And mm. um, it's kind of on brand because it is the first um, African-American Disney princess. And that inclusion meant a lot to me. I, um, My daughter was fortunate enough to grow up during the Obama administration where she had President Obama's wife and daughters and the grandmother to see women of color and black women in particular in a very prominent part of um, our, our society. And that was quite different for me. And so I bought her and her uh, niece everything Princess Tiana related, went to the Disney store and, you know, I'd never done it before and, and really just kind of did it all. And everyone knew it was more for me than for my daughter. And so the poor thing <laughs> had all of these uh, accoutrements that went with this movie. And so now for the holidays, Thanksgiving in particular, uh, she's like, Mom, do you want to watch Princess Tiana? And I'm like, absolutely. Well, we call it Princess Tiana, but Princess and the Frog, always, we, we like to get that one in. So I'd say that's got to be my favorite movie. And what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Could be something you you make at home or a, a restaurant that you frequent. You know what I what I find myself getting, and I guess it is very LA, and certainly um, even for the the Harvard Westlake folks, I think like a Valley place. I love Hugo's, and and oh, yeah. um, my favorite uh, Hugo's meal is the chicken and artichoke meal there. I think it's carciofi. I think it's an Italian for artichoke, but uh, that would be my favorite LA meal. Wow. I think. I love Hugo's, right? It's on Coldwater Canyon, just past the exactly uh, the the one one there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Get me a green matcha tea to go with that, oh. and you know, it, it's very LA, right? Like I wouldn't go. We'll back talk to about matcha <laughs> offline. We, uh, right? My sister in law owns a, a matcha company, so we'll have to. Uh, oh, fabulous! Connect about fabulous. that. Very LA. People are tuning out right now from around. The <laughs> exactly, country. and you know, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. What are you are talking about? Chopped barbecue? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and hush puppies? No, yes. I can't eat that all the time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thirdly, what is your favorite place in Los Angeles other than Hugo's? Oh, well, I love the beach, but I, I guess I love driving to Malibu. I think Malibu Canyon, when you come from the valley and you're, you're, it's opening up and you see the mountains and the ocean, North Carolina has mountains and oceans, but they're separated by about, you know, 11, <laughs> many, many hours of driving, right? Like 10 hours in between. And so I think that's what I really love about LA is that you can have those beautiful mountain views and, uh, and, and be on either the Malibu beach or, or driving in. So I think that's going to be my favorite place. So last question. I know you have two children who are in college. I have two kids. So I have a daughter who is three, almost three and a half, and a daughter who is eight months old. So little oh, ones. Precious, precious. Uh, my last question I ask each guest is what is your best parenting advice? Either advice that your parents gave to you or that is an original to you? I think my best parenting advice is to do everything you possibly can to keep the lines of communication open mm. between yourselves and your kids. And I think the means of doing that is to start early and to, to talk to them early and often and to 
resist the temptation to solve every problem they're raising, which is a very difficult one, mm -hmm. uh, but to just listen and to be with them as much as possible, because when you're ready to talk, that's not usually when they're ready to talk. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it to me, I feel like it's usually like about 30, 40 minutes in. And, you know, the more you're together, uh, you know, I, I find that they will kind of turn around and start just talking. And so trying to keep that in place so that when they're three, that hopefully when they're 23, mm. <laughs> you still have it in place because I definitely think they need us not as often, but certainly still as much, even when they're young adults. And so uh, if you have those communication lines in place and are, are fostering them when they run into one of life's many challenges, that you can be that resource for them. But again, the listening resource first, and, right. and then maybe the problem solver second. Uh, so I, I think I think that would be it. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly West Falcon, for joining the supporting cast. We are so honored to have you at Harvard Westlake as this year's Cutler Scholar in Residence. Well, I'm looking very much forward to it. Thanks for having me.